Hello and welcome to another episode of Cloud Ticket Podcast. This is the CISO Perspective Series episode. So we have Jeff Belknap from LinkedIn. He's a CISO at LinkedIn and we were talking about all things which are challenges and well, I guess for lack of a better word, when you're a CISO, there's a lot of things you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis, but some of this could be jarring and some of this could be fun. So to kick off the series, I had to start this series by bringing someone who has a lot of experience as a CISO to have this as a fun conversation, which he did. And uh, there is a magic trick in the end. I would definitely encourage you to check out Jeff uh, in social media platforms, including Clubhouse. That's where he hangs out every week, talking about breaches and uh, mentoring people as well. So I will definitely check him out, check his profile about how fun the person is. And I would say if you are someone who is a CISO or looking at becoming a CISO, this is the episode for you. So do share this episode with people who you think are keen to understand what's a life in a CISO like? What are some of the threats and business risks that they need to consider for their roadmap? If you are a CISO for a small company, whether it's a B2C or a B2B, what are some of the differences? We also spoke about what kind of metrics can you present to the board, which is where those are the people who are making business decisions on where the money would be invested and what could be something that can slow the business down. So we spoke about a lot of really interesting topics from a security leadership perspective. I would definitely encourage you to check this out, even if you're not a CISO, because having that perspective on what it means to be a security leader, because pretty much you're top of the stack once you become a CISO in security. I don't think it goes beyond this, but we spoke about some of the other career paths you can go down the path of as well. So definitely check this episode out. As always, I would appreciate uh, your time on the LinkedIn stream, all the guys and girls who came in and asked questions as well. Thank you so much for all the questions and support. I love the messages. So thank you for continuing to do that as well. Thank you uh, again. Uh, I'm still super grateful of the fact that all of you support us so much. We recently crossed the 40K mark on the podcast and we have set ourselves a goal of a 100K download before the end of this year. And I'm looking forward to smashing that with the rest of the team and all your support. If you are someone who enjoys what we produce, I would love it if you can share a review of podcast, a five-star rating on iTunes. That's what people look for when they sometimes come on the show. So it really always helps us get good guests. And I would also recommend if you're not following social media sites of Cloud Security Podcast, definitely do that because we're streaming only on Cloud Security Podcast LinkedIn page, YouTube page, as well as the Twitter pages or the Periscope pages of Cloud Security Podcast. A quick word from our sponsor, Exonius. Thank you so much again for making this podcast happen. And after that, we'll get into the episode. Thanks, everyone, and stay safe. Talk to you soon. Time is the enemy of security, and that's where Exonius comes in. Exonius helps organizations immediately know what assets they have and shows which devices, cloud instances, and users adhere to or deviate from security policies. Learn more and try it for free at exonius.com. In case you're wondering, the song in the background is called Sunshine. It's from a band called Avalon Jazz Band, which is a band based out of New York. And this is just another side of Cloud Security Podcast host choices. I love jazz and going to speakeasy bars. So I thought, why not start including those elements in there as well? Let me know what you think of this. But I would also encourage you to check out Avalon Jazz Band and yeah, get some of those grooves going. Enjoy your weekend and this is the episode for you now. Hey Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. No problem. I, I must say people are excited about the trick that you're going to show everyone. So... I'm curious as well. So it can happen any moment is what I understand. And, and that, anyway, you have to pay attention to the whole podcast. The that's one right. strange this, trick to be a successful CISO will be hidden somewhere in the podcast. Maybe even right at the end. Maybe. And uh, then we already did it. You don't know. I wanted to start yeah, off yeah. by where you start and how did you come to the CISO LinkedIn position? Like what was your journey like for some of the audience members who probably are looking at becoming a CISO soon? Yeah, I think, well... The the journey began way, way long ago in the mid-90s where I started sort of doing network engineering and telecommunications, was lucky enough to be doing that in the mid-90s in the U.S. where deregulation sort of started the rocket ship of innovation and 
growth for the internet industry. And I did that for, you know, 10 to 15 years. And as most, you know, sort of visceral boys do, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a cop or a firefighter, or I think a, a pilot. And I think those things never kind of leave you to some extent. And I found myself going like, boy, I really wish I could be involved in something more sort of justice related and, and sort of scratch that itch uh, that I always wanted to uh, to scratch. And I had an opportunity to join a startup in, I don't know, I want to say 2005, 2010 timeline. And I joined a network security startup called Solera Networks, where they did network packet capture and sort of reassembly of streams on the wire. And I really got to learn, I got to use my networking skills and learn security from that job. And it was fascinating. I got to get connected to the security community. I got to learn, learn what it was all about, learn, meet a bunch of great people. And from there, I moved on to another job and moved to California and joined a company called Palantir and ended up becoming the CISO there. Went, went from Palantir to another company called Slack which some of you may have heard of, was the CISO there for four years, took it public. And then after that, I was like, boy, I really would like to take a break. I'll do something easy, uh, like semi-retirement and take the CISO job at LinkedIn. And that is not at all uh, what the role at LinkedIn is like. Uh, certainly, it, I was mistakenly sort of, I was like, oh, this is a big mature company. This will be a piece of cake. And really what I found was, you know, high growth companies don't stop growing. They just get older. And LinkedIn has certainly been around for almost 18 years now, but the rocket ship has not stopped. And where I've been used to being the CISO at a company that is early stage, but rocket ship 100% year over year growth, LinkedIn feels like that, but is a, an established mature company. And it's been a really exciting challenge. That's pretty awesome. I did not realize LinkedIn was 18 years old. It's, it is getting to the point where it can drink in certain situations. It can drive the car uh, without its permission. <laughs> that's going to move out and get its own apartment at some point if Microsoft says that's okay. One of the questions that I ask my guests who come in is, what does cloud security mean for you? And I get different definitions each time, but it's always interesting to hear different people's perspective. Like, what does it mean for you per se, cloud security? I don't think it means anything special to me. I think... Cloud security is just good data protection and data security extended into a not on-prem environment. I think, you know, the connotation there is that it's special. And the reality is, you know, there are some parts of it that are unique and are special in the sense that you can't use the same tools and the same controls the exact same way as you do in an on-prem or a data center centric environment. But all the modalities and sort of philosophy around how you're going to do detection and response and prevention, they're all the same. It's just a matter of you're picking up one set of tools and replacing parts of them with another. Because in the cloud environment, for example, you know, having done network capture at a startup before, network capture is less effective or used in a different way the way you would use it in an on-prem environment. In an on-prem environment where you know where the four walls of the network cease to exist and you know where traffic should go east west or north south in a cloud environment it's a little bit different right you can't capture everything that's going through going on in the cloud environment you have to sort of rely on you know, networking techniques that help you get a sense of the visibility observability what's going on in the network but a lot of what you're going to rely on are good controls boundaries trust boundaries and then you're going to rely on detection on the host or on the end on the edge as much as possible so uh, while it's different, I think from my perspective, with my job and where I sit, I, I don't think about it any differently. I just think about the philosophy of what we're doing is the same. It's just you're using slightly different techniques. That's pretty awesome. And I'm glad you mentioned it as well, that a lot of people kind of forget the fact that fundamentals still remain the same, irrespective of whether we move from our laptop to a virtual server, from a virtual server to a data center, and then from a data center to another data center, which is called cloud, I guess. Yeah, exactly. It's just somebody else's computer. That's pretty much it. As you were telling me your history in the beginning about you kind of moved from startup, then a few other companies, Slack, and then LinkedIn, which is still like a rocket ship, as you mentioned. I'm curious to know from, I guess, for other CISOs who may be listening in, what are some of the challenges that come with this kind of a role that some people may not be pre prepared for? Like a lot of people look at this and go, oh my God, CISO is the ultimate. I want to be there. And I was gonna. I was hoping you would break down the reality of what it's like to be a CISO. What kind of challenges are kind of part of your usual life these days, or were you used to be part of it? Yeah, I think the best way to imagine it is if you work in security now, or even if you don't, if you just work in tech, it's a little like what do you think being CEO is like? And 
I think you'd you'd recognize if you could imagine being you know the CEO or the CFO of a uh, of a large organization, you probably sit there and go, I probably don't know, have any idea what that really is like. And I think the CISO in in many ways is the same in that it's relatively easy to be part of sales and go, I think I could be CEO. It's relatively easy to be part of finance and and look at the CFO and go. I'd love to have that job. But if you're part of IT or technology role in general or or part of information security, it's, you know, the chances are you're not really sure what the CISO does all day. And what I can tell you is a lot of what we do is worry all day and all night sometimes. But the, <laughs> the thing we really spend most of our time on is the the sort of administrivia of being an executive or a senior leader for part of the business. It's not, it, absolutely not, you know, the smartest security person in the whole organization. As I have to remind people who are like, oh, you're kind of dumb sometimes. And it's like, yeah, I'm not the smartest person that is part of our security organization. My responsibility is really to, to first and foremost, be accountable and be responsible for the execution of the security program for, for LinkedIn in this case, or whatever organization I'm representing. And really what that means is I have to take responsibility and accountability for identifying, communicating, and, and managing uh, security risk in the organization. I have to ensure that as the executive accountable for security in the organization, that we are operating a security program that's sufficient to meet the needs and the, and the business needs and the objectives of the organization and and sort of make sure at the same time that we're accountable for all these things that are sort of intangible, that we're operating and making good technical choices and good investments in what we do and bringing good people into the organization to help make those choices for us and help execute you know whatever technical, whatever strategy we come up with, execute it technically and execute it well with our cross-functional partners. And I'll say that's probably the other thing I spend a significant significant amount of my time doing as CISO is just working with my cross-functional partners. Security is inherently a multidisciplinary practice, but also just a cross-functional or a horizontal function across the organization. There's very little a security team can do all by itself. And I think certainly where security teams fail and where security leaders fail is where they try to go do everything by themselves where they try to be the only person that drives a security thing forward. And what I've learned is you, you have to go build relationships with all the other people in engineering and all the other people in finance and legal and privacy and, and sales, because you have to treat all those people like your stakeholders. You're doing security for them and they're depending on you to deliver some you know functional component of what they do all day. So it's not all just writing Python and fighting bad guys. It's a significant amount of people like me sitting in a meeting trying to figure out how do we get headcount budget and then where do we find great new people to bring to the organization. Wait, so you're saying it's not fun at all? I'm, so I'm not hacked <laughs> CIA? I, I think certainly it's great that people think you're this super spy ninja person. And sometimes you get to do things that are really fun and, and feel like you're in a movie. But I think the reality is my job is mostly sitting in meetings. And I can assure you that having brought my daughter, my eldest daughter, to bring your child to work day several times, she's like, this is your job? Like, Wait, like, so yes. I thought you were in CIA. Like you were doing all this, like, go get a hoodie when you go into the office and just go to this basement of the office. None of that? Yeah, none of that. I mean, look, I work in Silicon Valley, so there's a lot of hoodies, or at least there were <laughs> the pandemic. But yeah, no, it's mostly a, a boring day job in the same in the sense where if boring is the, you know, if boring is at any moment, if I make a mistake or make a poor choice, I could be putting at risk the data of several hundred million of our members and customers. So if boring is the fact that you make a wrong decision and everything is on your shoulders, then yeah, it's boring. But the reality is a lot of that just happens in the same making slides and meeting with people and trying to adjust budgets and advocating for what we're trying to do and trying to either talk somebody out of something silly or talk them in to something that would be a good idea. And it's just, what I find is it's a lot of relationship building and dealing with people and helping them manage risk in ways that they just hadn't spent much time thinking. It's pretty awesome that you mentioned the relationship management part as well, because I think it's definitely not spoken enough about, and I'm glad you mentioned it, but curious, you mentioned COVID as well. Has COVID kind of changed Anything about security or becoming a CISO for you or that you see around in your circle, I guess? First and foremost, you know, the question I get the most is, has it changed anything about how you do your job? And the reality is, not really. I think, you know, there was certainly a lot of fear about that. And I would be lying if I didn't say we changed a few things. You know, you make changes to your VPN setup, you make changes to, you know, sort of assumptions that you've made in a threat model based on the fact that now instead of just a couple of people being traveling and, you know, maybe they're coming, from, you know, maybe you've got 
a uh, hundred people at any given moment coming on the VPN from a hotel or some other untrusted place. Well, now everyone's coming from that untrusted place. And I, I think what I've said before in other public places is like, whatever your roadmap was for the next five years, probably some part of it was the concept of zero trust or having people mm. come in via the internet and, and access a lot of their web apps and other things that they might be using in your organization without being on VPN. Well, that is now. Like that, you moved that forward to now. And even if you were using VPN before, now you've accelerated, you know, all the things you needed to, to do to build capacity or move people off it if that was appropriate. So I think there have been tactile things like that. But I think the other side of that is we've all had to adjust. We have hired a number of people that I've never met before, right? I brought on a new senior leader that joined my, my staff who's responsible for maybe a good third of my organization. I have never met him in person. We, it was like, this is this funny thing of, I was talking to this guy, his name's Laksh. We were talking before the pandemic and then the pandemic hit and we sort of paused all the hiring because we had just done like a video call, get to know you for, for whatever reason. We didn't have a coffee meeting then. They were going to bring him on board. We had to pause hiring. And then when we spun hiring back up, we, that was it. We weren't meeting people in person. So I have not only senior leaders, but I have a number of individual contributors on the team that, that I like very much. And I've like, have never met them in person. And the flip side is true. Like those people have never met their peers in person. They've never had the benefit of like LinkedIn has an amazing, beautiful campus and lots of amenities. Like there are gyms and basketball courts and all these things that you, you know, they're sort of like parodies of themselves, but it's one of those sort of traditional you know, sort of like Silicon Valley things you might think of on TV and it's great, but there are people that have never experienced that. And there are people telling jokes about, oh my God, butter chicken day was the best day in the cafeteria. And they're, they're like, yes, I've heard about that. I have never experienced it. Could we, could we please stop talking about it? But they've missed out on this camaraderie and the, and the relationship building. So everybody has had to move from like, you build relationships by going to grab a coffee with somebody or meeting them on the way to lunch or in a hallway to having to be intentional about how you how you make time for that stuff. That's pretty awesome. And good to know that's Butter Chicken Day as well. That definitely got me curious. Like the Indian in me is like, I wonder what that's about. Yeah, they finally actually published the butter chicken recipe because it was so sought after. And then when the kitchen closed, people were like, hey, you know, there were all these people sort of working the back channels of like, can I get the recipe for that? And so it's actually online now. You can look for the LinkedIn butter chicken recipe. It's amazing. All right. I'm going to add that in the show notes because clearly I imagine there would be a lot of people interested who are stuck at home, possibly like um, some of us. So I'm pretty sure they can make something interesting at their home to make their uh, lockdown interesting. I'll warn you, it is not for beginners because I took a look at it. I was like, I'm pretty good at cooking. I can make this. And I was like, no, I can't. I don't. Hey, oh, okay. Okay. I, I'll, I'll take that. I'll, I'll probably be... Uh, challenge accepted. A challenge accepted, but I'm going to include my wife in there because she's, she's the one with the smell and everything. She's going to... I think she, she definitely has the art for cooking much more than I do. I'm just usually chopping vegetables, I guess. Yeah. Well, you're good. I mean, hey, the, the world needs ditch diggers too. If you can shop that, you're useful in your kitchen just as much. Oh, that's right. So I've got a question here from Winnie. So how do you find managing people in security teams? How do I find it? I, I mean, look, I really enjoy people and managing people, which is funny because I find myself to be a very stereotypical introvert, but I, I sort of ironically really like talking to people and getting to know them. And which is why I started my career as an engineer, you know, working literally in the field. I was working at a cable company for a great while towards the beginning of my career, digging in the dirt and helping, you know, connect the first sort of pre-DOCSIS cable modem infrastructure in, in the U.S., But I pivoted to management because what I really liked doing was sort of working with people and helping them find what they needed to focus on and developing them and and having them move through their career. And I have found it, one of the things that I thought magical about working in networking was like, you connect a piece of fiber optic on one end, a piece of fiber optic on the other end, like literally light just flows between them and it converts it to bits and you're communicating across these great distances. Like there's something magical in there, even if you understand how it all works. On the other side, on management, I've really found it magical that you can invest in people and help them work through their problems and see them grow in their career. And I've been very fortunate to see people that I've worked with take on other CISO roles, take on other senior leadership sort of engineering roles. So I really like doing that. So for me, managing people is both the single hardest thing that I do all day in that you you can definitely let people down. And you can definitely underprepare to, to help people and you can phone it in and that impacts what people do. But at the same time, if you invest and you pay attention and you listen and you follow up and follow through, 
you can watch people just flourish and, and grow, just take things off, whether it be a project or their career. It's super rewarding. I think what I have found, though, specific to security is it attracts a lot of unique personalities. It attracts a lot of people that might you know, be thought of differently or might be, you know, might not be ideal candidates for other roles. But in security, I think where you, you know, where you're sort of neurodiverse or you have a, you know, different perspective and maybe you, maybe you come from a different country or maybe you come from a different background or maybe you were in physics or medicine, like all those things are amazing in security. It's a melting pot of different perspectives. Like if you grew up somewhere differently than the rest of my team did, that brings an amazing new, fresh perspective to whatever we're working on. And the bad guys also have different perspectives than what we're working on. So I think it's amazing. So I think there are, there are a lot of rewarding opportunities there and there are a lot of unique individuals in security, but I, I have found it to be something that I really enjoy doing. To your point about helping other people achieve greater things, I think the whole analogy of teaching someone fishing versus fishing for them, I guess, kind of goes really well in there as well. <laughs> I hope that answered your question, Vinny. So thanks for that question, man. I was going to ask in terms of other aspects of becoming a CISO, some of the conversations, and I think you wrote an article about this ages ago as well, was having conversations with board members. And uh, over the past few years, CISOs have kind of almost gone to that point where in a lot of organizations, it's not just reporting to a CTO or a CIO, they're actually at the same level as a CTO or a CIO. I guess people who are looking at that and going, oh, it's hard to communicate information to board. They don't care about security. There's a lot of kind of, well, I, I guess, misnomer around this sometimes. I feel like at least I've been fortunate the board members that I've spoken to, they're quite aware of security. So can you know from your experience as well, what's like without, without ditching any of your board members, what's your experience been like? And what is something that has helped you in situations where you might feel it's been difficult, I guess? I think I've been really fortunate in that all my board members have been really engaged. I think, you know, there's always ex exceptions and some people that understand sort of the deep technical stuff differently. But the key part about it is all the board members I've worked with have all understood the value uh, of security, the risk of underinvesting or not paying attention to security. And, you know, you, I, I can't put a price on that. I, I certainly have peers and, and friends that aren't that lucky. I think the tide is turning though. The amount of board members that can walk around blissfully ignorant of security is dwindling quite dramatically, right? There is no part of your business today, if you're an established organization that is not impacted by cybersecurity, either policy or specific actions by actors. And you know, if you're a board member, you have to have some awareness of what that means. But let me be clear. The way I approach board members is talking about security in the terms that they can understand and appreciate. And what I mean by that, and I guess this would be one of the secrets of, of being a successful CISO, is understanding that it's not my job to teach board members to be more technical. It's not my job to make them understand what a pen test is or you know how a certain flaw works. Certainly, if they're interested, I'm happy to engage and deep dive. But my job is to represent security in business terms. Like, how is this going to impact the business? What, what part of the business growth outlook are we impacting by investing at this level versus another level in security? Or what is some security risk that we've discovered? How can that or how did that impact the organization? And what I found is communicating with board members in terms that they already understand and understanding their world, understanding that they're thinking about PNL and sort of the balance sheet and they're thinking about how the business is growing very differently than you know, mm. what is the new what is the tech stack that has been the secret to winning them over i think the other part is really understanding and i learned this from one of the general counsels i work with that a board is oversight not management right you're not going to the board to ask permission to do something you're not necessarily going to the board to get them to approve a budget or a headcount or something like that. Maybe in smaller organizations, they've got tighter oversight, but you're going to the board to tell them, we have identified these risks, these problems. Here's what we're doing to address them. And here's the progress we've made on that. And, and they're going to ask you very difficult, very hard questions. And it might be difficult because they're coming from a board member perspective instead of a technical perspective. But those questions should inform how you're thinking about it. And they should inform how you're working with your team to make them see the board's thinking about it this way. Let's make sure we're grounding whatever our answer is in something that the board's also going to understand. And that doesn't mean adjusting what we do, but it means understanding like what are the financial impacts of what we're doing? What what are the technical impacts? Like, how, is this are we slowing down growth? Are we going to make it harder for developers to deploy things? Are we going to add friction to how our users sign up or engage with our content or our, our products? 
All those things have to come into play because all those things impact how the business operates. Great answer. And I love the perspective of it not being just about security and our job is not to teach security to someone else. Although it does get hard. I, I think sometimes I, I, I put it across this way. I mean, you're a security person and you see yourself, a great way to see that you're going into this technical mode where the other person doesn't understand is when the other person starts rolling eyes and probably like, oh my God, this guy's going, oh, going on again. So probably a great sign when you talk to a board member and they're like rolling their eyes, probably should reel down a bit, I guess. Yeah, I think, uh, again, sort of having a high EQ and understanding when you're losing somebody and what a, a subtle eye roll means in the real world and being able to adapt is really important. Because if you're I like, agree. okay, they're rolling their eyes, I better get more technical. Oh yeah, don't take the opposite of what is happening. Like, this guy doesn't know anything, so I should go even more deeper into Python version 2.7. Yeah, it's helpful to remember, and I think I picked this uh, statistic up from Ed Amoroso, so I don't blame me if it's wrong, but... We were, at a, we were at a talk once and he sort of threw this thing out that I found to be very true. But he said, you know, the average board member at a public company is 62 and a half year, a 62 and a half year old white man. And their technical skills at that age, like that's, don't put a password on my iPad because I won't be able to open it, right? It was like their level of skill is they really understand sales strategy, go to market, product market fit, marketing skills, they don't understand uh, cybersecurity. Most of them, though, understand how those risks can impact the business. And I think it's just, you have to put yourself in the mindset of who you're communicating with. When I say I've been lucky, though, like out here in Silicon Valley, a lot of your board members are other people that have run very technical companies and they've been founders or things like that. So they can engage at a much deeper layer of technology, which is good and bad. They can go ask you like, oh, or, you know, what platform are you using for data pipelining? And you're like, uh, it's like, sure, we can talk about that. <laughs> and that's fun sometimes, but it's good to keep it at the board level. Let, let me call my expert as I'm at talking about pipelines. <laughs> Fair enough. I've got a question here from Shanesha. Who got, I hope I pronounced your name right, Shanesha. How do you decide what metrics are most important to present to your board? I think it depends on your business. At the end of the day, there's some key things that you always need to be presenting to your board. And it's just, you know, what the metric you use is sort of uh, up to you. I go back to when I give mentees advice about finding a job, I tell them the same thing I would tell everybody listening today. If you're looking for a job, step one, get a LinkedIn account. All, there's a lot of good jobs out there. That's how recruiters are going to find you. But step two, when you're mailing your resume in or you're applying or you're filling out uh, the thing where you've sent your resume in and then they've asked you to re-enter it a second time and you're screaming uh, a, a deep visceral scream, what you should be doing is adapting your resume to fit you know, sort of this, the circumstances and the context of that job. And that doesn't mean lying or making stuff up. It just means there are ways to talk about the work that you do, the skills that you have that are contextually relevant for the, the job that you're applying to, right? If you're gonna talk about that job, if you're gonna talk about, I have security skills and you're applying to a big four consultancy or you're applying to a manufacturing company, like the way you frame your skills is, is naturally going to be different because those organizations are gonna value different things and you're gonna highlight different things that come out. Those are all still your skills. You still have you know, all those expertise, but you're gonna like tease out things that are more relevant to the audience. The same thing is true for boards. Boards at different companies are focused on different things. They have different people. No one board is the same. They're all made up of, of people with different skill sets. So when I communicate with a board, my main focus is going to be on, you know, let's talk about the risks that exist in the organization. Like I said before, what, what are the risks? What are we doing about them? What's the progress we've made since last time we spoke? And then generally going to talk about, you know, anything that's top of mind. Like, did we have an incident? Did we, you know, was there a significant departure from a talent perspective? Was, you know, was there something else that's urgent that needs to come up? that they need to be aware of. Honestly, that's most of what I would present to a board. And if I go back to uh, the last time I was pre presenting to a public company board at, at Slack, that was it. That, those were my slides. Like, like, like that was it. Now there was a lot of context and maybe we looked at different numbers that talk about the progress we've made for different projects or different initiatives or different risks, but it's tailored to that level of conversation because that's generally what a board wants to know. And I don't talk directly to Microsoft's board. I'm part of a, a leadership group. That's all the security leaders at Microsoft. We have 
one corporate CISO that primarily is the the main face that talks to the board, although we all interact with the senior leadership team. But you know, even Microsoft's board, that's what they're focused on. Like, what are the risks to us and to our customers and to our engaged uh, members and partners? How are we doing against those risks? How are we doing against our own initiatives to address those risks and, and to improve our products, et cetera? And what are we doing next? And what's the progress we've made? All the conversations generally center around those things. So your metrics are all going to center around how you communicate those things. And they're going to evolve from meeting to meeting. There's going to be things that are consistent, things that you, as you interact with the board, you get the sense that like they enjoy consuming that, they find it valuable to consume a metric that you share, but you're going to adjust. You're not going to thrash. You're not going to make the whole deck this, the different every quarter that you meet with them, but you're going to evolve the way that you're communicating and evolve the kind of things you're speaking about. So it's never really the same. And I'll point that out, like when you are wondering what you should present to your board, focus on the first principles of what they need to know and worry less about, I see this all the time from peers and colleagues, hey, do you, can I get a copy of your board deck? Don't, <laughs> don't do that. Like it is definitely helpful to understand what other people are doing so you can get an idea of how you want to evolve what you're doing. But nobody's board deck is going to work for you. It all is a, an amalgam of what your board members need to know, what you need to tell them and what the best way to communicate with them is. Awesome answer. I was going to say, can you explain what first principle is? Because I, I feel like a lot of people in the Valley use it. I've kind of got my own definition of it. But a lot of people hear first principle and go, what do you mean by first principle? I should probably Google it. It's an easy way for me to just say, let's break the problem into, you know, sort of the key elements. Let's go back to, instead of making a decision based on how we feel or what we're seeing in the moment, let's zoom out to go, what are, what are the principles by which we might make a decision? And then like, let's draw all the problems that we're having back to those principles and make sure that we're, if we're deciding a policy or making a really difficult uh, choice about technology, let's go back to uh, a principled view of how we'd approach that. At least Why that's how just... I interpret it. I didn't go to right. business school or anything. So maybe I'm learning the wrong usage of it. But it's No, uh, but that's my understanding as well. But because I've always asked, why not just call like, what's our goal as a business and stick to it? But people like to say first principle. Yeah, well, I think you can use it in every context. It's like, you know, what, what are our goals in security? Or what are our goals with this detection and response program? Or I think the time that I end up using it all the time is, if we've got a risk management program, like what are our goals here? We're trying to reduce risk or reduce reduce actual harm to humans. So let's make sure the decisions we're making are rooted there because it's so easy as you get, you know, as you deep dive into like a data protection issue or a privacy issue to look at just the problem right in front of you and you can sort of miss the forest for the trees and get back to paint yourself into a corner or get backed into a corner about decisions you made at the micro level instead of zooming out to the macro. And I think if you're making complex decisions in a very challenging environment, it's easy to lose sight of that. Appreciate that. And uh, hopefully we answered your question, Shanessa. By the, by the way, congratulations on your job as well, Shanessa. She, she's joined Microsoft recently, so you might see her as a colleague walking down, well, walking down your virtual hallway when you guys go to the office, I guess. We can send each other gifts on Teams. It'll be great. <laughs> you, go. you can definitely do that. Switching gears back to, I guess, the topic we were having. Obviously, boards have different perspective, different sizes, so definitely appreciative of the answer that you gave there. What about the different kind of businesses? Like, you know, between B2B and B2C, seems like you've done some stints in both. And I've personally been primarily in the B2B space. And for B2C, like, oh, so I'm curious to know from your side, what do you see are key differences in a CISO's role between, say, a B2B versus B2C, I guess? I, you know, I struggle with how to answer this question, mostly because I, I've been enterprise or B2B for almost my entire career. And LinkedIn's my first foray into something that is very heavily B2C or consumer focused, although we have a significant amount of enterprise business. So mm -hmm. it was a good opportunity for me to sort of do both things. And what I have learned is that it's really not all that different. I think the things that are different are you're making different calculations and understanding how different people perceive risk. Enterprises, when they engage and they sort of engage like, you know, can we trust you? How do we build that trust with you? When they engage and sort of understand whether you're an organization and a security program that they can trust, the way they approach it is very different than consumers. And I think there are two sides of trust in any organization. There's that foundational trust, the thing that, you know, if a bank is going to sign up for an enterprise uh, license on something, 
they want to make sure you're going to be a business that is around that you you know you're not just going to fold overnight and and certainly linkedin as part of microsoft they're not worried about that but what they want to see is that you have sufficient controls and a security program and an audit that you know shows that you have a well functioning control environment but on the consumer trust side on that individualized trust side that is how you as an individual interacting with whatever this product or service is that's how you perceive it and certainly Almost every enterprise product that people buy, there's still an individual. There's somebody like me or you or the people watching this that use the thing, and there's how they feel about it. However, if you're buying enterprise productivity management software, something to operationalize and optimize the way you manufacture a widget or something like that, people aren't going to worry about like, am I going to get harassed in this product, or if you know, do I know if my boss is watching me? Like, you oh, don't have yeah. as much of that. There's a little bit of that. Mm. But if you're buying email, or if you're a member of LinkedIn, certainly you have a lot of questions of like. What happens if if I engage with somebody who's impolite or harassing? What if I have an interaction with somebody where I think that might be fraud? Those things are how we respond and how that gets handled and how you can report that. Those influence how you feel about trust. So I think if you're a CISO at your organization, and certainly I I'm not responsible for all things trust. I'm a big stakeholder in how we handle that at LinkedIn. It influences how you make decisions because again, I come back to the first principle principle of I'm trying to minimize as much as possible individual harm to a person or a group of people. That drives a lot of decision making that I have to do. I want to make sure that like, great, I might make a decision about some technical control that we're going to do that might really be the most technically correct thing ever. But if that's going to position something where employees or members or somebody else might be at risk or might not have a good experience, that's not something I want to do. I want to optimize for that outcome. So it really just comes down to how are you optimizing your decisions? How are you making decisions about risk and what's informing that? And in a business to consumer environment, you're going to be much more informed by risks that might be dangerous to individual humans versus how a company interacts with us or how, you know, they might decide to renew or not. And at the end of the day, it's still the same thing. Whether a bank is buying from you or whether you, Ashish, are buying as a member of LinkedIn, I want you to do business with us. I have to protect your data that you are entrusting me with. And I have to do it to the same degree, whether it's you, Ashish, or whether it's a, a large manufacturing company. That's pretty awesome. I was talking about uh, consumer, when we were uh, kind of agreeing on the concept that, oh, you'll come on the show and all that, it's a really interesting thing that thought that came to my mind was, hey, I wonder if the LinkedIn platform would be able to take on the LinkedIn CISO coming on the LinkedIn platform. I, was, I wonder if there's like a like extra compute being provided for that particular streaming <laughs> service at that point. I, clearly, we've been stable so far, so I'm not going to knock on the word. I'm not going to jinx that, but I totally agree. As a consumer, there are very different problems. Like availability is probably a lot more different and louder, I imagine, when people don't, can't access a service, even if it's a free service they're accessing. They're just happy to go on Twitter and rant about, I can't access LinkedIn right now. Oh, yeah, what yeah. are you doing? <laughs> Not super worried about about us overloading the platform for me. I, I'm flattered that you think I'm that big of an attraction. I, well, I this, imagine... you have to do the trick though. So I'm just waiting for when the trick happens, they're like compute services just coming out everywhere. <laughs> That's it. We'll spin, up, we'll spin up more stuff on Azure. It'll be fine. It's a great answer because uh, a lot of people who may be in the B2B space, I know I joke about this, but it's really hard privacy for an individual, especially if you consider as humans, we've evolved so much and there's, there's so much, I, I guess, diversity in perspective as well that you have to cater for. Like thinking for every possible perspective on this world, it's, it's not an easy thing just to be respectful for them and having a platform which is safe. Man, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's not an easy job. There are a lot of people working hard to make that happen. And I, I, and I can't take credit for much of it at all oh, yeah. because I, I have lots of peers. Like I said, there's a group of people that make up the trust organization across privacy, safety, security, legal, the, the data organizations. And, and I apologize if you're part of one of the organizations that I'm leaving out watching this on our own platform, but there's a lot of people that come together that focus on that. And I'm really thankful to have joined an organization that really prioritizes that. And, and the reality is like, I just couldn't join an organization that didn't care about this, that it wasn't a priority for, because it's a priority for me. And, you know, all the organizations that I've joined in the last 15 years have all been places that I felt like at the time that I joined, they aligned to my personal philosophies, the way I think about, you know, morality and ethics and, and sort of my personal principles. And I'm really very lucky to have been able to be choosy about those kind of things. That's, that's very good. good to hear. And uh, I'm happy for you as well. You've been able to consistently go down that path as well. So 
taking on that experience then, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are going, great, 15 years. So 15 years as a CISO or 15 years uh, in security? I think, just over, I think I'm just over 10 years as a CISO, about 15 years in security. I don't know. I don't know how math works. It feels like uh -huh. all the Stop. days blend into one at this point, Ashish. I think I've been at home working <laughs> for about 20 years at this point. Oh, yeah. I think each day is just another day. And you're like, what day was it again? And just like, I know you take your dog out. I guess it's morning now. So the dogs come out. Yeah. By the way, dog pictures on LinkedIn have been really interesting. Not, not that I'm saying I, I've been envious of how beautiful your dog is, because my dogs get certain attention as well, as long as it doesn't bark in during live streams. I get kids yelling and dogs barking during meetings. Why not during live streams, right? Normal yeah, yeah totally. It totally works. I, I was also going to ask, Based on, say, the 10 years experience you've had as CISO and continue to go down this path, a lot of people kind of are also looking for well, what's next after a CISO usually like, or is it like you become a B2B CISO, kind of grow into that and kind of go into different companies or B2C CISO and you just go into there or kind of like what you've done yourself, move from B2B to B2C. What's the next goal after this? Is that it? Like you become a CEO after that? Oh, no. I had a, a fantastic recruiter that I think was mentored me very well in the early phases of my career. And one of the things that I learned from him was it's very valuable, even if you found something you're really good at, right? And, I, and I'll, I'll preface this all by saying one of the best things you can learn for you as somebody building a career for yourself is get really good at something. Find some part of, of what you're doing and where you're working now, if you want to work in that space. If you're in security, whatever it is, like find some part of security that you can get really, really good at. It doesn't necessarily have to be something you're passionate about, but once you're really good at it, you find that the passion usually follows. If you can get really, really good at it, you can make a career out of just that thing by doing this, by going and saying like, great, can I do that thing for a company that consumes product? Can I do it for a company that sells product? Can I do it for a company that you know produces the parts that you make? And you can become really well-rounded by working in a couple of different places that have different takes on what you're doing. And I'll give you an example. When I learned this from him, and man, I can't remember his last name. His name's Paul. Works. He's a recruiter out of Buffalo, New York. He's a fantastic guy. Made a huge difference in my career. So thank you if you ever see this. But I was in networking and he was like, great, Jeff, you're a network engineer now for a cable company. Go be a network engineer for a company that buys internet services from you, right? That's like, uh, and I eventually went to go work for uh, a financial services firm and I worked in a bunch of different ways there. But like, I worked at an ISP, I worked at a cable company, I worked at a company that bought ISP services from other cable providers. I worked at companies that sold, you know, sort of network services and data services. And I think once you've seen all aspects of that industry that you're in, and you can be in the same role, you've really grown and you've really grown your ability to contribute to a business that you work for because you've seen these different aspects of the problem. So I think the same thing is true in CISO land. If you're a CISO, you could be a CISO in healthcare. And you could be in a, a CISO that works at hospitals or works at insurance providers. If you're a CISO that is a CISO now in finance, you could be on all different aspects of whatever the market that you're in. And I think there's a lot of growth there. But you could also go, great, I'm a CISO now in enterprise and I'm going to be a CISO in consumer. I might be in media or I might go to finance. I think the more you do that and the more you see different perspectives on security from different places, the more valuable uh, it makes you uh, as an individual that might be skilled, whether it's a CISO or as an analyst. But it also gives you just a lot more depth of experience to draw on. One of the things that I feel uh, really privileged to have done is I've had a number of jobs in my career. And while, although it's been pointed out to me by some peers, I've been able to maintain a certain length of, of CISO, holding a CISO job for as long as possible, which is unusual sometimes for CISOs. I've held lots of different jobs at lots of different places, you know, maybe for three, four or five years. And all of that has been really incredible for understanding how to interact with boards differently, understanding how different companies approach different problems, and understanding how our customers have different perspectives when they approach us. So I think the next job after CISOing for me is either, you know, being a starter at a golf course or like a, uh, a coach at a swim, swimming pool or something like that, but relaxing because, <laughs> boy, I could really use to relax more. But I think it's just, you know, I, the next CISO gig after this, if I decide to take one, would probably just be, you know, in a space that is new to me, but somewhat related to something I've done before. So I can continue to like grow and learn and, and bring value to whatever I do. Interesting answer. And curious to know 
What options do exist once you've been a CISO for a while? Because like CISO advisory is another one that people keep talking about. And obviously, uh, this is talking about in general as a CISO. Because a lot of people make their career path thinking, oh, that's the that's the end goal that I'm going to go to. I think that's kind of where the question was coming from as well. Do you, Among your peers, do you see what are the other paths people take? That's, that's where the CEO joke came in from, by the way. Yeah, I think, well, I think mm-hmm. I, I certainly have known people that have become CEOs and founded their own companies. There are people that go advise companies or might go to the VC space and invest in the security space. I think there are CISOs that then go work for security startups that might be addressing some niche space that they have some deep expertise and passion about. But I think, look, CISO is, if you're into management and leadership, it is sort of the top of the stack as far as that's concerned, I think board opportunities are becoming more and more an option, although that's not really a full-time job necessarily, unless you have a lot of boards. But I've seen also people transition to you know running, I, running IT as well as security full-time. And I have not a majority uh, of my peers, but I know a significant number of my peers are managing security plus IT uh, and sort of a quasi-CIO, CISO hybrid role. And that's very interesting. I don't think that would be for me, but I'm seeing that become uh, more of a growth path or an opportunity for some people. I'm really quite happy with where I'm at. I can't imagine doing something else, although I wish sometimes I was good at something else. It's certainly be very stressful uh, sometimes. And I'll tell you, like, even still, I get woken up or have to work late. You know, like incidents always happen, but I can't imagine doing something else completely. I guess the question over here from Ubay, which is kind of like, I think I was going to ask a similar question. Maybe you can answer them together. Because my question was more around, the, like, as a CISO who's looking ahead and making building roadmaps, what are some of the trends you're seeing for what people should be looking out for? I think you do that yearly uh, LinkedIn article that you've been doing that kind of inspired this question. So I wonder what are you looking at, say, five years on the track? And kind of goes back to what Ubay is asking as well. Like, what are you thinking from risk and threat perspective? Where do you see this go, I guess? I think the place that I see it go most often is just the adversary. And really, I almost hesitate to use the word adversary as as broadly or generically as I have in the past, because, you know, you think about adversaries like a bad guy who's trying to steal something from you or ruin your business, or maybe they're like a foreign intelligence service or a state level actor. But it's really the gulf has widened significantly between, you know, the kinds of actors that you find uh, in your environment. It used to be like, you know, maybe five, 10 years ago, it was a lot of espionage. And then a lot of like, you know, people clicked on things and maybe a computer got compromised here or there. And it wasn't dramatically impactful to the business. Well, now what I would say is commercial enterprise of crime has become a significant driver, right? And I think being able to monetize some part of a cybersecurity incident is a big part of what happens in the space today. So I would say to some extent, the espionage, foreign intelligence type stuff has gone, has shrunk. And the vast majority of sort of market of a total addressable market for crime that you can commit is really done by organized crime groups now. So the thing that I worry about is if you're a foreign intelligence service looking to you know, execute actions against a target that might be legitimate for your government. You have a fair amount of money you can invest in R&D, but you're still a government. There's still somebody at the end of the day you're making slides for, you're meeting with your boss, like you have a job that you hate as much as any government worker. But if you're a criminal enterprise, there's a significant uh, market incentive for you to get good and commit resources to developing techniques and tactics that are going to be effective uh, against a target, uh, more so maybe than a, a foreign or a nation state. And what concerns me is the rapid pace at which you know people are advancing and how inexpensive it's getting to successfully execute an attack. Maybe five years ago, executing a two-factor off bypass or an interception, you were like, okay, that's only going to be you know the top top of the top, the A team of some nation-state adversary or some exceptionally talented you know criminal element. Well, nowadays that's. That's cheap. It's inexpensive. It's still difficult, but it's a lot easier than it used to be. So I worry about like, great, not not just me, but all of my peers, because uh, a rising tide or a falling tide lifts all boats or impacts us all directly. If we're putting products out that don't have 2FA or or don't have advanced, you know, sort of, I'm not going to say fishing proof, but difficult to fish, you know, two-factor. If you don't have a, a solution like that for your product, you're really, really behind the times. And I think about like that's very present now, especially as people are talking so much in the industry about zero trust, which really just means you don't trust your networks, you treat everything as internet, and sometimes you're going to have internet-facing you know, access for a lot of your applications. 
you're exposing yourself to a, a risk landscape that's significantly more sophisticated and advanced than it used to be even 18 months ago. So I worry about those risks that are accelerating. I worry about the kind of things that you know we're all walking around with, someday I'm gonna get this project done and worrying about the timeline for that project you know, maybe being too long or maybe the investment being not enough. And the reality is none of us have enough money or people to spend on security. I, I effectively have an infinite amount of money and people to invest in things and that's still not enough, right? You, you have to prioritize where you invest and when you invest and, and that's the hardest thing. So I would say, like, for me, the threat landscape is rapidly expanding, successful, more advanced attacks are becoming less expensive for people. And I and my other peers are still struggling with how do we get smart people in the door? How do we keep them happy? And how do we have them focused on the right work? And it can be quite a lot to balance. It's easy to work offense. You only have to be right once. I have to be right every single time. And when I'm not right, I have to be really effective at moving and addressing that time that I made a mistake or we didn't get it quite right. That's much more expensive than running an offensive program. So I realize that that's sort of abstract, but I think it really just comes down to like hiring people and getting good at it is a business risk, is a technology risk because it can dramatically slow how fast you can move. And then that is weighted against how fast the adversary or the bad guy is moving. And all those things equal, you, know, you can't take your eyes off the ball. That's a great answer. But before we end, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where, where can people find you? Where can they connect with you? I would say LinkedIn's a great place. I'm a part of the great place to hang and go live stream. <laughs> yeah, I think you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter, although I'll warn you, my Twitter I use to be much more, much less professional than I am on Twitter uh, or on LinkedIn, rather. And then you can find me on Clubhouse and, or in person in the San Francisco Bay Area. Awesome. I, I, I was kind of hope, uh, I was hoping you were dropping your podcast as well that you've started doing recently. Oh, yeah. I have a podcast that I co-host with David Spark and the CISO Series Network, Defense in Depth. Check it out. I also have a, a regular uh, show I do with my friend, Joel De La Garza, who used to be a CISO at Box and is now at Andreessen Horowitz. We do a thing every Thursday on Clubhouse called Breach of the Week, where we talk about breaches that have happened in the industry. We're trying to destigmatize breaches and talk about what we can learn from them and, and sort of interesting stuff that's happened around the space. And there's probably other stuff I'm doing that I'm forgetting and I'm sorry, but I think, you know, we're all at home. Every one of you has at least one podcast you are recording right now <laughs> that you are making, and I can't wait to be a guest on it as soon as my calendar opens up. Awesome. And thanks for sharing that as well, by the way. I would definitely recommend people to check out the Clubhouse one specifically. You kind of really find out the frolic and fun Jeff, but the person he is. But thank I'm you so much. i on Clubhouse for... before my comms team makes me stop doing it. Yeah, that's right. Before they identify Clubhouse as a platform we can talk <laughs> like endlessly with, and people could be recording on the other end. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Thank you so much again. I, I, I definitely can't wait to have you on back again, but I'll definitely encourage everyone watching to connect and probably get some mentorship and uh, stuff from your side as well. I'm sure your wisdom that you bring in with the 10 plus years of CISO and 15 years is definitely worthwhile tapping into, especially with experience like Slack and LinkedIn and stuff as well. So thank you once again. I really, I really appreciate it. And uh, for everyone else, I'll see you all next weekend. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks we'll for having soon, me. Man. Oh, thank you. All right. Bye. Cheers. Thank you for listening to that episode of Cloud Security Podcast. If you found some new information from that episode, we would appreciate if you share it with others. Share it with us as well if you have any good feedback or good learnings from the episode. We are on all your favorite podcast platforms. If you don't find us there, you can always go on our website, www.cloudsecuritypodcast.tv to listen to the latest episode. We appreciate your support in helping us grow. It helps us bring more guests. It helps us support the channel. So really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time and talk to you on the next episode.